Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. In this week's episode, I talk to fellow writer and novelist Paul McVeigh about supporting cast, my first short story collection that focuses on the lives and loves of ordinary people, including some familiar characters from my earlier novels. We talk about writing character-driven fiction, amplifying the voices of working-class writers, and dealing with rejection alongside two readings from the book. This episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is brought to you in partnership with the University of Birmingham College of Arts and Law. We explore what it means to be human in historical and cultural contexts, within ethical and legal norms, and through languages and communication. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Birmingham Literature Festival. Uh, my name is Paul McVeigh, and I'm here to interview Kit Duval, novelist and short story writer, and currently screenwriter as well, and we'll hear more about that later on. Kit was born to an Irish mother and Caribbean father and was brought up among the Irish community of Birmingham in the 60s and 70s. Her debut novel, My Name is Liam, was an international bestseller and was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award, longlisted for the Desmond Ellion Prize and won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year for 2017. That was followed by The Trick to Time, which was longlisted for the Women's Prize and her young adult novel, Becoming Dana is shortlisted for the Carnegie CLIP Award 2020. Kit has had uh, also huge success uh, with the Common People Anthology, but mostly today we're going to be talking about Kit's short story collection. That's a mixture of short fiction and flash fiction, and uh, it's called Supporting Cast. And Kit's actually going to start with a reading uh, from the book. Kit, hello. Hello, it's great to be here in my hometown podcast um, because it's always great to be at any Birmingham event. The story I'm going to read is from Supporting Cast and it's a short piece of fiction. It's for actually flash fiction and the title of it is Edith Paisley Jones woman in a flowery skirt and it's a character from my name is leon and she's a passing character a woman at the allotment and it's uh, set in 1981. she hung on love ready until her hands were weathered and rust spotted she stayed hopeful and optimistic until the light went out and the horizon disappeared her heels became square and sensible her coat cut to keep out chills and disappointment. She wore thin lips and crept into loneliness like ivy through a tree. Then he came along and eyed her like an unclaimed prize. She began to disregard her slip and umbrella. She found herself with him on piers, at funfairs, kissing him quick. She began to laugh again and leave windows open, became forgetful and blasé with recycling. A whistler, a liar in, a gatherer of shells. 
Raising her head, she always found him there, waiting and dry-footed on the shore. He took her hand, drew his shape on her life and on her plans. He was reliable and true. Then he became indispensable, necessary. She wondered how she would live without him. And when he spoke of permanence and years to come, she began to suspect his sudden appearance and question her good fortune. When she had been eager and would have been grateful, he was elsewhere loving someone else. So she told him he came too late. Now she was nearsighted and content. She weeded her plot with rough hands, with knuckles too thick for rings. She became busy, practical, grew box hedging down the path and phallic gourds in pots. She cut her own hair, silver, flyaway, untamable. At weekends, she studied maps and drove hours to deserted coves and dangerous walks he wouldn't dare. She covered miles of beach in stout shoes and concentration. He never followed. They never met by chance. That was lovely. Um, when I was reading the collection, I often found myself in tears. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you're a writer of what I call emotional fiction. When I when I read your work, it's it just engages with my heart. And I wonder when you're writing, are you aware of that? Is is it an intention of yours? And do you feel as emotional as, as we do when we're reading or listening to you? To be honest, I only really write what I can write. I don't you know, I'm not trying to, to use any sort of devices or anything. I think I find it really hard not to write that way. If someone said to me, can you write something cold that you where you don't engage the heart? I find it almost impossible. It's just literally, uh, you know, it's not like I've got a box of tricks and I can bring them out. I'm just sort of writing who I am, I suppose. Very occasionally when I'm writing, I've got a lump in my throat. I can remember when I was writing a particular uh, scene in My Name is Leon when he meets his mother at a family centre after a long time. And when I wrote the end of that chapter, I remember thinking, oh my God, this is terrible. And I was genuinely upset. I knew it was a true scene and it had to happen. But... Um, I, I certainly do know when I've struck the right tone and when I've got the right note because I'm moved and I think you have to move yourself just, just the same way as if you're a comedy writer. You need to find your own jokes funny, you know, otherwise you haven't got a sense of it. So yeah, I think I do know what I'm doing, but I don't know how to not do it, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. And uh, just remind um, reminds me that I was reading recently about My Name is Leon and we're going to see it on television. Is it this year or next year? Well, I think it was going to be October before the virus struck. Um, so I should imagine with a, a few months out, it'll probably be January or February now, but they've gone into pre-production of it. Uh, I think, I mean, that sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Pre-production is something like where they are gathering the cast they're working out locations and stuff like that. So it's definitely 
happening and they have um, apparently cast Leon as we speak. You know, they've got a, a boy. They found, they found the child, which is fascinating. Oh, wow. And you, it's, a, it's a Lenny Henry's production company. Yes, right? it's, a, it's a production between uh, Lenny Henry and the BBC. And he's in it, isn't he? Are you going to be? Apparently, he, yes. I mean, I was told he was going to be in it. I don't know what character's playing. I think he is probably going to be playing uh, one of the guys from the allotment, but I, I don't know. Don't know which one. Can't wait oh, to I see can't, it. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that can't wait to see it. Um, uh, I want to go back even before uh, you wrote uh, My Name is Leon. And um, I think the first time I met you, it's at London Short Story Festival, is that right? Yes, yes, that's and, right. And you, you were, um, you were so you were writing short stories before you wrote yes. um, your novel because obviously now the collections come out after two novels and 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 some uh, YA novels as well. Um, you know that actually it, it looks like oh she's now turned her turned her hand to short stories, but actually you were writing them right from the beginning, if not before you. Totally, novels, is that right? Yeah. I was writing these before my novels. Yeah. So you so where did that love um how did that um originate? You know, was that some, something from reading short stories when you were a child, or was it your first attempts at writing? Where did that all come from? My first attempts at short stories were actually uh, flash fiction, and they were flash yeah. fiction because they were bits of homework that I had from doing my creative writing MA. Um, right. And also, I mistakenly thought that short stories were easier than novels. You know, I just mm -hmm. thought, oh, you bang those out. You know, you've only got to do a short story. You've only got to do 2,000 words. Not knowing that it's an absolutely different skill completely. It's also harder, if anything, because you are constrained. Certainly, if, you, if you're entering, if, you, if you're writing a short story for a competition, you really are constrained by a word count, which you aren't in a novel. So yeah, it was it was definitely a mistake because I thought that this is this was going to be my route into novel writing, not knowing that it's a completely completely different discipline, like playwriting is, like screenwriting is. Of course, it's all writing and storytelling, but actually the skills and the structure and, and the stuff that you've got to know and appreciate and be able to do are just different skills to novel writing. Wasn't was my name is Leon your first novel, by the way? Because often writers uh, have have a couple in the drawer uh, that they didn't uh, they didn't send out or or, or didn't make it publication. Yes. Was it was your first novel? Oh no, no. So I had two novels before my name ah, is Leon. The first one was called um, Blue and Green, and that was about uh, it was set partly in the eighties and partly in the present day. And that I, I nearly got published. I nearly got published. Uh, so I got an agent and I had a publisher that was interested, but he couldn't get it sold to the rest of his group. Then I wrote another one called Tomorrow, which was set in Birmingham, which is about an Irish man and uh, a woman. And that was my agent at the time just said it was rubbish. And <coughs> then, and I was absolutely gutted both Devastated, times. I mean, yeah. I. I God. often see people on Twitter or elsewhere saying how disappointed, you know, you know, I'm really upset and I'm, I'm really upset. And then you get somebody saying, oh, you've got to keep going, you know, and just this sort of blasé dismissal of the gut-wrenching disappointment of, of mm. not having your novel published. It's such a hard thing. 
I always really feel sorry for people. I feel like saying, no, you know, be angry, be upset and mm. let that settle before you sort of dive in. Oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, I'll just write another one. You know, that's two years sometimes, five years sometimes. And I can remember when Tomorrow didn't get taken. In fact, my agent, like I said, my agent said it was rubbish. I I, I wept. I mean, I was, she, she actually brought me. To, I have to say this is not my current agent, but she actually got me to go down to London to tell me that. Um, and then I had to go on the train home and I was so upset. I was, you know, I cried for days. Well, I can, oh, I can understand that, but I'm not just going to change, I'm going to change the tack of that because I want that, it has an amazing upside to all of this because then this, that brought you to My Name is Leon, which is this amazing yes. success and got you this incredible deal, which this collection is all part of, wasn't it? So, um, yes. So how did it, how did it feel, you know, after coming through what you just came through with the two rejections, yes. which obviously affected you and, uh, 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 well, devastated you. And But, you know, then you then to go from that to the kind of dizzying heights of My Name is Leon, which yes. is, you know, massive deal and huge um, acclaim. And uh, I mean, that what extremes, you know? Yes, complete extremes. And also when it happened and when... I, you know, my book went to auction. So I was going to all these publishers who were trying to say, you know, sign with me, sign with me. And I'd gone from no one wants to read your work, you're crap, to, oh, my God, you're wonderful, come to us. And I didn't believe it. I remember just mm. saying to my vet, my vet, then agent, what's going on? Because I mm. couldn't get anyone to read anything before. And now mm. everyone's telling me I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was hard. I mean, it was bloody great. But it was weird. It was a very, very weird place to be in from going from naught to 60. Uh, and everyone telling me my writing's fantastic. But a couple of years before, my, my writing was rubbish. So it's, it was an odd thing, really was. Yeah. And then, of course, you then then you tricked a time, which um, did really well as well and got fantastic reviews. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about common people a, a little bit later on. But just, just to follow this through then. So you have these two novels. And um, this is a fascinating concept for a short story collection. Um, I think short fiction is a good phrase actually for it, isn't it? Because of the mixture of yes. length. Um, you know, so could you just tell us a bit about um, where the idea came from this quite unique concept? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would consider myself a character driven writer. So all of my stories always come from a person or, or people. And consequently, my novels are riddled with characters that I just didn't think I'd finished with, people that I that appear in both of my novels. And to me, they're real people. They appear in my novels and then they go off and live their lives. They aren't devices that are just inserted into the book and then sort of disappear and go into the ether. I feel and I always have felt that they're real people that I can I know so well and I could visit and they'd talk to me. Um, so with this collection, I wanted to give the spotlight, really, if it was in a theatre, they'd have the spotlight on them for a moment where they would just tell their story, tell a bit of their story. So, you know, after I was in My Name is Leon, this is what happened to me. Or before I was in The Trip to Time, this is who I was. So I just took those characters and you know, gave them a little bit of airtime, told their story. Sometimes it's 
way before the book started and sometimes it's 20 or 30 years after they've appeared in the book and it was an absolute joy it was a joy to go back to these people and say to them you know what have you been doing or who are you mm-hmm. yeah and a great title for the collection as well supporting chaos because exactly what who they are in, in in those books and did you find that when you went back to choosing those characters or was it a, a case of it was the ones who who didn't leave you alone? Because <laughs> obviously it's not yeah. every supporting character is in there. So how did you go no. about choosing those characters, or did they choose you? If you know what I mean. Um, I, had, I mean I had to cut it down. That there were, I could probably have done another twenty. Uh, some of them I knew. I knew they were going to be in there. Some of the work on the short stories had started as character studies before ever this collection started. Uh, so the character studies I'd done um, when I was writing either of the novels. There were certain people that I knew had to have their story told, like Castro, who died in police custody. And there were other people who are so transitory in the book. So, for example, there's one woman who, who doesn't even get a name check in My Name is Leon. She's just a girl that is running up and down the corridor. And no idea why I wanted to speak to talk about her, but I just felt the girl running up and down the corridor in the family centre with a, a mom who's not very good deserves to have her story told what's going on for her. So, um, yeah, I could probably do another two or three collections if I had Ooh. my way, I would. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. Do you have favourites? Castro is one of my favourites because it really came from a very deep place, um, a black man dying in police custody. Um, but I do love, I love them all. Pestilence I particularly love. She's, she's an Irish woman uh, living in Galway. I mean, bits and pieces of, of everything, of every story. Yeah, and um, I loved um, the last one as well, the Tom Fallon, isn't it? The Wedding Speech. Yes. Yes. Um, it's just so, again, very moving. And that was written for Radio 4, was that right? I wrote it for the collection, but Radio oh. 4, um, yeah, recorded it. I think it was, um, yeah. And they actually, I said, look, I'm absolutely happy for you to read this story, but you have to have an Irish narrator. There's no way an English person can read this story. And they actually found an actor from the village that the story's um the, the town that the story is placed in, which is Skibbereen in County Cork. Get out of so town. it's completely, that the recording is bliss. It's so authentic and it's exactly the sound um, that I had in my head when I was writing it. It's it's fantastic recording. And is that on still on iPlayer, do you think? I think it, it is. is. I think it yeah, is yeah, still absolutely. on iPlayer. And, and so, I have it, obviously. I have the MP4 of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you can go and check that out, see if it's uh, see if it's, see if it's still on the BBC iPlayer there. And I was thinking about your recent script writing, and I know that you yes. write um, screenplays and um, for and scripts with your brother. Yes, uh, that's and right. I was just wondering, you you've just got something on, isn't it? It's, it's on Sky at the moment. Um, it... it will be on in September. It's called The Third Date Stars Jude Law and Naomi Harris and it's you know for for a first-time screenwriter it is the dream commission you know somebody very very famous theatre writer called Dennis Kelly got in touch with uh, my agents and said 
would like to write a couple of episodes. I mean, come on. You know, that does not happen. Nope. So, yeah, wrote two episodes with my brother of that. And since uh, that's happened, obviously, we've got lots of other commissions to write things for the screen. Um, Hopefully a film about Malcolm X's visit to Smedic in 1963 which is um, we're looking for a director for at the moment so yeah it's a completely different skill and it's still me writing about the things I care about basically you know Mm. I'm still writing about people and characters just the 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 different people of the of the world and the unexpected yeah and you uh you recently also wrote some theatre monologues is that right I think was it yes yes can you tell us a wee bit about that as well? So about a year ago, um, Maxine Peake got in touch with me and asked me to write a, a monologue. Well, she didn't say it had to be a monologue. She's so great. She's another heroine of mine, a hero of mine. Um, and she said, would I write something for 100 Years of Suffragettes? And it was basically about you know women getting the vote. And I'm just never going to write historical anything. So I wrote a monologue, 15-minute monologue, about a woman today um, who's decided not to vote because the votes don't make any difference and I've got better things to do. And it's her really talking to herself and saying, why should I vote? And through the things that have happened to her, traumatic things that have happened to her in her life, she decides, yes, I do, I do want to vote. And by the end, she she uses her vote in, in a very particular way and for a very particular reason. And recently, um, during the first weeks of the COVID lockdown, I was asked by the Abbey Theatre in Dublin to write um, a a monologue again called Dear Ireland. Uh, And it was really a love letter to Ireland, how I felt about Ireland, not, not particularly to do with the crisis, but just where they were. And again, I I could choose the actor, which I I chose Peter Collin, who's fantastic. Um, And that again, that was called The Three Irishmen. And it's about all the different ways that we are Irishmen. There's Irish people who are born in Ireland. There are refugees that become Irish people. Mm -hmm. And there are children, black children that are born in Ireland who become Irish. And it's Mm -hmm. just about those three different ways of being Irish. But it's it's written from a very, if you like, a very malevolent point of view of this bloke saying that's, you know, I, I don't agree with that. And then, again, talking himself into how that is right and how that happens. It's about a man who's been affected by uh, the refugee crisis. So you've written flash fiction, short stories. You've written for radio. You've written monologues for the theatre. You've written screenplays for a television show and screenplay now for a film. Is there anything, anything at all that you don't do? <laughs> yes, I will never write a play because that is a real talent and a real, I just don't think I could ever write, you know, a proper play for theatre. That's not my thing, I don't think. And also, I've I've seen really good playwrights and I I'm not up to that, so I'm never going to go into playwriting at all. But I love monologues because monologues are flash fiction or short stories. Uh, so yeah, I won't do that. I don't think I'll ever write jingles for adults or anything like that. Oh great, great. So we could add to that long list uh, that you also write YA uh, books, which is 
which is again a different yes. skill that's different from writing shorts or different from writing from for adults so how did you find that shift was it was it an easy shift or was it a shift that came naturally or was it something you had to really uh, look at and um and sort of learn some new uh angles and new skills uh, of storytelling it was different it definitely is a different skill to write ya people that read ya particularly the ya audience are, expect a very you know a very specific delivery if you like they, they expect to read things and have a certain emotional react response to that writing the same way as if you if you pick up a crime or thriller you expect certain things to happen and to to, to be delivered in a certain way and YA is, is a genre and it did it, it was a you know it was a learning curve for me I don't think I got the first or second drafts right at all but I did have you know a lot of help I had a really really good editor somebody called Helen Thomas and she you know said to me that's you know that's not going to hit the mark for this audience and in the end I mean it was a joy to write because um Helen told me that I could write, I could choose one of the classics and reimagine it for a, a feminist YA audience. And so I took the book that had the least women in it and then just put this, this young girl at the centre of the story uh, and made it her own. So she, there is an Ahab, a Captain Ahab, if you like, and it's about her relationship with him on a road trip in a VW camper van. And again, it was just a great thing to write. Really great, really great experience. And it's done very well as well and up for an award this year. So good luck with that. And um, I was going to, I was still thinking, I mean, as well as all of this, you then have this sort of other job that goes alongside your writing, which is one is a sort of bit of a lioness, I think, really, when it, uh, you know, <laughs> it, sort of fighting the, fighting the corner for uh, marginalised writers, working class writers, um and um you know through your when you got this great deal you you know you you, you set up a um a scholarship at Birkbeck wasn't it um was it Birkbeck University? yeah and yes. then you also you came up with the idea for common people which was an anthology of working class writing that had um I think 16 um commissioned sort of famous writers from around the UK that you wouldn't necessarily no were working class for example some you would some you wouldn't and then find 16 new writers to champion and that was a yes. huge success and and now there's the sister version of that happening in ireland with people like roddy doyle and kevin barry and i mean that's, that's obviously something that's very important to you like alongside you are writing and being an artist that you want to be there to leave that trail of breadcrumbs for those that come behind yeah i mean i don't have a working class lifestyle now i think i'm very privileged in, in the, the way that i am able to live now but my identity completely was formed uh, as a working class person as a working class child in fact i wouldn't have said i was working class when i was a child because the working class people I knew and grew up with were posh to me. I had we had a lot less than working class families. Um, but then when people speak about working classes, it includes people that were brought up the way I was. And it's, you know, a word that we don't use anymore. I was poor. We were poor children and a poor family in a poor area. You know, I, I grew up with, with not enough to eat, not enough to wear in a cold house, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard the stories. Um, but when I became, when I got published, I was really surprised to find how 
exclusive publishing is and how there are not enough people working in publishing from the background I come from and not enough stories told about the background I come from and, and that background includes lots of backgrounds working class is not a big homogenous group my doing common people was really my way of saying you know are you joking there's all this talent out there that cannot get you know any attention from publishing that cannot get these these stories told and I very much wanted to give back to communities like mine uh, a helping hand and a step up and that that sort of thing happens for middle class people all the time networks that are extended hands that are extended backwards you know friend of a friend of a friend said you could do this well that's the sort of network I'd like and I am trying to make for working class people so that there's a routine someone's gone before and kicked the things out of the way and kicked the door open and said come on you know let's all go through so um that was really my intention both to showcase the amount of talent that there is in working class communities unseen talent and also to say um you know do something about it to the publishing industry all of these yeah. great authors unknown authors and known authors and it was really my way of paying back i think um my community helping helping communities i come from and similarly with the irish one and classes are very as you know very well class is a very different beast in ireland it doesn't mean it doesn't exist it's not like it is in the uk but it certainly exists in that working class people in ireland north and south are disadvantaged in many many ways that has an impact if they want to get into uh, a creative life. So obviously with your help, in fact, driven by you and edited by you, there will be 32, which is a, um, an exploration of working class writing from all the different communities, working class communities in Ireland. And I literally can't wait to read. That's gonna be a fantastic thing. Yeah, um, well, we're all excited here and um, having taken the mantle on from you and all your amazing work over there, and um, I want to ask you to read another story from your collection, if you would. Of course. This one is called Becky Finch, Staff Canteen, Morrison's 2016. And this is the girl that was running. So in, in My Name is Leon, when Leon goes to the family centre to meet his mom, um, he has to wait in a, in a hallway and in that hallway there is a woman who is is a mother with a broken arm and she's in a state and she's not taking care of her daughter and her daughter is running up and down wildly in the corridor and leon notices her and that's all that there is about her in the book and this is her story told many years later becky finch staff canteen morrison's 2016. it was the lunch break and I was stirring my soup in the staff canteen. The girls came in and they all started at the same time. We'll get a sleep, say, at a part hotel in the town, they said. And then we can walk to all the restaurants in Torre del Mar. Linda knows all the best places. And then shopping the next day. And then a swim in the ever so blue Mediterranean, because if you don't, you haven't lived, they said. They said at night, the temperature's in the 20s, so you do, don't need to pack much and you can get away with carry-on. And for 30 euro, they do this trip out on a boat 
to try and find the dolphins. But even if the dolphins are hiding, you get a hot dog with sangria, which is the best way to get over a bad head, they said. Then in the daytime, they said, you can just sleep and fry on the lilos because it's so hot. You can't even walk on the grass. And anyway, it's too sharp and prickly, not like the back gardens in England and not like the wet grey skies hanging like death itself over Milton Keynes. Come on, they said, come with us. There's always loads of blokes out on the piss or stag night. You can meet them on the plane and swap numbers. Linda will do your hair for you before you go to get rid of the grey. We're not going for six weeks, they said. And if you go on the South Beach diet, you could drop 20 pounds in that time, 30 if you don't eat fruit. Holiday money? Well, we'll have a kitty, they said. Linda looks after it because she doesn't drink, do you, Linda? They said, we know you miss your mum, love, but it's not like it was a shock, was it? Didn't you say she'd been in and out of rehab since Noah put into court? You said you were half expecting it and you were right. Then they all looked at me and I told them what social services said that it was a miracle she'd lasted this long. And it was only that I'd looked after her so well for so many years that she'd had a half decent life. I couldn't help getting choked up. And then it was like the floodgates. And I told them what it'd been like for me, putting her first since I was six years old and never knowing what I was gonna come back to. And I told them about the time she came at me with a knife that she thought it was a hairbrush and that she kept falling out with the neighbors. And they'd have a go at me and tell me they'd call the police on her and I'd have to move us again. And that before I got this job, shrink wrapping bacon joints at Morrison's with the best bunch of girls on the planet, I'd never had a proper home, so I'd never kept any friends. And my sister married someone from abroad and doesn't keep in touch and wants to act like she's posh and forget about me. And all the girls rubbed my back and said, bless. Then they started again. Bring a beach bag, they said. And don't bother with sun cream because there's damaged bottles out the back. And when we asked Nigel, new manager, retro flares, what would happen if they disappeared? He said it was like a butterfly landing on a branch in Peru. If he doesn't see it, it hasn't really happened. And we're drawing lots, they said, to see who asks Nigel for all of us to have our holidays at the same time. Linda can't because she always goes red because she fancies him. Don't you, Linda? Come with us, they said. You read so beautifully. Do you, is there going to be an audio version of the collection? Yes, there is an audio version. And um, I chose, before the lockdown, I chose all the people, hand-picked every author. Uh, some of the, every author, every reader. And some of them were authors, some of them were friends of mine, some of them were actors. And then the pandemic struck. And I couldn't get them. So um, Penguin arranged for some great readers. Um, and I've, I've listened to them all. And I've made sure the Irish ones are Irish and the black ones are black. So it's great. It, I love the audiobook. It's really good, really works. When's that coming out? I can't wait to hear it. When, when, is that it's out, out It's out oh, already, yeah. It came brilliant. out uh, about a week ago, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll definitely be, I'll definitely be checking that out. So we, you've got this, you've got your collection out at the minute. and um, and what what can we expect next from this sort of 
multi-genre bending author, Kit Duval. What have you got coming up? <laughs> Two things. One, I'm I'm working on a novel which I adore, and which is very hard. I always I'm, I'm right I'm stuck right in the middle of it when every writer just goes, What am I doing? How can I make this work? And that's where I am. I also want to write a memoir. Um, I'm hoping to sort of start that simultaneously and do much more screenwriting and um, also trying to have a life. I have zero social life. What's that? And I would really, I know, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. And I'm determined <laughs> to try and have some kind of good time alongside having a, a very, very busy career. Well, um, I, I'm in for that. If you want to go to the disco sometime or something like that, I'll definitely <laughs> come on. Um, and uh, listen, Kit, thank you so much. Uh, it was lovely talking to you. And you. And um, I hope everyone goes out and buy Supporting Cast, which is uh, published by Penguin. And if you um, haven't read any of Kit before, you can also check out My Name is Leon uh, and A Trick to Time. Um, her her two novels and um, and then her, and then her TV shows as well. Thank you to Birmingham Literature Festival for inviting us uh, to do to do the interview. I hope you've enjoyed it, and please do check out some of the other podcasts for the festival. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.